You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Bodker, and I'm joined by two good friends, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler, who is a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. We're all back on. The band is back. How's it going, guys? How you been? Hey, Matt. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you guys. We Before we get going, I think we all come with heavy hearts right now. I know I've been really struggling with the whole George Floyd gruesome death and it's been hard. I mean, it's it's hard in so many reasons, and my stomach is in knots mostly all the days. Partly because I don't even know how to respond. I've I personally have learned a lot about myself, my own ignorance, and I'm taking this time to learn a lot. And it's like it's it's, it's that kind of thing where you want to do something, right? You really want to do something, but you just don't know what to do. So you feel, in a sense, helpless because partly because of my utter ignorance. And we'll talk how that maybe makes sense a little bit more of there's a really good example of how I screw it up already by yesterday, <laughs> by trying too hard. So, but I, I, de- I have a really strong pit in my stomach and it's been hard to focus. Honestly, guys, even coming on this podcast, I'm like coronavirus, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's like, I, it's just, it's just hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, it's still important. Uh, mm-hmm. It's still important to talk about. There's still a lot of stuff in the news and there's a lot of relationships between the whole craziness of the pandemic and what we're seeing now as a response to the death of George Floyd. And I think we're going to spend a little bit of time reflecting upon that. And I'm excited to, to be able to do that and hopefully provide some value. Before we get started, like always, we, we always really appreciate the reviews that come by. Here's one review I just want to read. It's our last one. It's been great. This, this gentleman's named DDA John T. So thank you, DDA John T. I don't know who you are. He says, I've listened to a lot of folks with political bias pontificate about the, this pandemic, but these guys want you to understand the science. In his book, The Great Influenza, John Barry wrote about the conflict between science and, and politics in 1918. These guys remind, yeah, 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 yeah. Stephen, this is like his like devotional yeah, reading man. every <laughs> night. <laughs> it's, it's, you ever want to have a book chat? You just today. <laughs> yeah, totally. We'll launch a Stephen's book study uh, yeah. next month. And continuing the the quote, these guys remind me of those voices in 1918 who tried to help people understand what was going on so that they could make wise decisions that would have saved lives. Do yourself a favor and listen to this podcast. They have a lot of solid information that can help us help as you try to navigate through this time. So thanks, DDA John T, for that awesome review. And uh, if anybody would like to continue, we'd love that. Again, we'd love financial support as well just to help us pay for all the equipment that we're using. Uh, we can do that through patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. As little as $5 a month, month can help a lot. Even a one-time payment through PayPal or Venmo. Just check in the show notes for the links to do just that. And lastly, if you want to sign up for my Living the Real podcast, go to livingreal.com. I have a lot of information there. Just released a new one on finding margin in our life, which I really think we need to have that space to be able to reflect and be able to learn more about what's going on and be truly educated and make wise decisions. Okay, there's a lot in the news, man. Now that we're doing this every week, I feel like I just I have a laundry list of things that I want to talk to you about, and we just don't have the time. So someday we're going to do an all-nighter when we get older and I retire. But until then, we're going to kind of keep this a little bit shorter. First things I want to throw to you, Mark. So I, I read a few days ago that Moderna clinical trial just entered into phase two. So what does this mean? And I heard it's record pace, like 63 days like that. So what does this mean? What does phase two mean? And what does this mean for us for the hope of the vaccine? Is it on track maybe for potential January 1st? a release or sometime in January? 
Yeah, I think, you know, we'll see. It's, it is super fast. Again, we, we talked a little bit about how phase one is mostly is geared towards safety. Phase yeah. two is starting to determine the drug's efficacy. And so this is, you know, we're on on the way. And then we get a little bit of a sense of sort of the short term effects, like the side effects that you might get or the risks associated with the treatment. And then it's phase three is usually a, an even bigger study where you look sort of against the current standard of care, which in this case is no vaccine. And so there it's, it's a stepwise process. And the idea is you kind of build out each time and you get more information each time, but you get some preliminary. So we, so moved through the phase one trial onto the phase two, where we're now starting to look actually at outcomes and efficacy in addition to safety. Yeah, it's a big deal. And I think, you know, we'll see, there's just, feels like there's so much that's waiting on a vaccine. You know, we can do a certain amount of reopening and, and, you know, have been, and, and it's important to do that, but it just feels like until we have a vaccine, some of these things are just never going to really be as open as we want them to be. And so we'll see, we'll see. Yeah. So can I, can, can I ask a follow-up question that even ashes makes me want to throw up? And this is (laughs) my question. This scares me. This really does scare me to to get this answer. Yeah. So is it possible that we can Mm -hmm. get a vaccine, say record time, January, and it's like the flu vaccine? Mm. where it has a 32% rate of of actually working per year. I mean is there what's the chance of that that actually being the case or is it a pretty strong chance that will it, it would hopefully work completely. Yeah, well, so there's nuances with the flu vaccine, right? And there, there's reasons that the flu vaccine gets modified every year. And Stephen can speak to some of that as well, because epidemiologists are really involved in figuring out okay. which strains are going to be predominant. Things you have to know is that typically on these viruses, so they're on these viruses, there are different proteins, right, that affect the way that the virus interacts with host cells and gains entry and and some of the viral characteristics and things like that. And our immune system also recognizes those proteins. And if you prime the immune system to recognize the correct glycoproteins, uh, then in theory, you get a clinical response. And if you miss the target, then you get less of a response. And so it's even tough to say, you know, from year to year, what percentage efficacy the flu vaccine has and like we can drill down into that data too because just getting a single number of efficacy is actually potentially a little bit misleading in terms of like how it works from year to year and different strains and what is clinical efficacy and all of that big picture wise it's it and Stephen, correct me if I'm wrong. What we're what we're working on right now is a vaccine for a you know for the SARS two coronavirus. We have a very good sense of what glycoproteins we're trying to target. This isn't something that's undergoing seasonal antigen shift as happens in the flu or antigen drift. I guess would be the the actual antigen drift from year to year. And so, all that is to say. I'm hopeful that when we have a vaccine that targets this, it's actually going to work at a relatively high rates of efficacy. You uh, you had me at antigen drift, Mark. You had me at antigen drift. <laughs> Stephen, you want to chime in? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, largely just to agree with that. You know, flu is flu is a strange pathogen, man. It's it is a constantly moving target, and it it mutates like crazy. You know, it was it was like made to do that. And, you know, most viruses do mutate at some rate, but, but it doesn't seem like the coronavirus mutates at that level. And so the, it isn't as much of a moving target. Like Mark said, we have a much better sense of what we are trying to target on, on the, on the, on the virus surface. My concern, I think with the, with the vaccine is, is not so much that it, that the efficacy won't be very high, but that it just won't, that, that the, 
you know, the effectiveness may not last for a very long time. So you might need to get repeated boosters or something like that. But that's sure. that's a much better scenario to be in than just a vaccine that doesn't work out right. So I'm also hopeful. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I would imagine, again, this is my ignorance, that when we think of boosters, we're not thinking like, oh, crap, it could be a monthly booster. We're thinking like, oh, maybe an annual booster. Or that's something what I would like, expect, yeah. Oh, yeah, so okay. basically oh, like yeah. flu vaccine in that sense anyway. Yeah, just right? like, yeah, maybe like, they yeah, can like, do, maybe they can do like a bivalent, you know, you get your flu and your coronavirus every right. year in the same, you know, yeah. vaccine Two or something deal. like that. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Bonus. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> Man, yeah. This is a sale going on right now. One. This is great. Okay. Global pandemic. So, uh, we, <laughs> another great piece of information that I, that I don't fully understand. First human trial of potential antibody treatment for COVID-19 begins. I, I, from what I read, this is different from the other stuff that's been going on. Mark, do you want to chime in for a few minutes and uh, Stephen? So, you know, I uh, can't comment specifically on the study itself, but I can talk a little bit about the difference between vaccines and antibody therapy. So, you know, the idea of a vaccine sure. is it's a it stimulates the body's immune response. So it stimulates the production of cells and antibodies against a pathogen to help protect you from um, getting sick when you do get exposed to that. Antibody therapy kind of skips a step and it it delivers the antibodies directly to you you know that's one of the things that underlies the idea of giving convalescent plasma or plasma from individuals who have recovered from coronavirus to those who are still ill that you're giving them sort of a load of these antibodies that then go and detect and attach to the viral cells and stimulate the immune response that way now there are ways of creating antibodies um, so that's done by you know giving plasma from somebody so it needs donation every time from some who's recovered and a matching blood type. There are ways to isolate antibodies and eventually to produce them and manufacture them in a lab. And so that's the that's kind of the, the big difference is that we're they're looking at engineering ways of creating antibodies, which is part of the human immune response, so that they can be delivered directly and hopefully help to mitigate some of the effects of infection. Okay. So this seems to be something that could be given it's more directly, maybe not effective, but more directly provided to those who have COVID then an antiviral. That's like that's like some kind of composition of a pre-existing right. Yeah, it's it operates in sort of a in a completely different way. So an antiviral medication is going to in various ways decrease the amount of re- viral replication that happens, and, but they don't necessarily stimulate or mimic the body's innate immune response. So all of these kind of the way I think about it is you've got sort of an arsenal of things that could potentially be helpful. So you have, you know, vaccine, which I think is probably is is the most important thing. You have antibody therapies that mimic the body's response. You have antivirals, and there's also anti-inflammatories, which is yet another part of the immune response that can actually end up causing harm once the balance, you know, we call it the homeostasis, the homeostatic balance tips over too much and you get too much inflammation. A little bit of inflammation is good. It helps your body fight sure. infections. Too much is where we start to see some of these, you know, lung damage and fibrosis and 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 other uh, complications and so so yeah. I you you I think you know when I look at the potential therapeutics and what we have I think that each of those categories has some viable contenders and we may have to have some answers in each of those categories to help so that we have as much at our disposal therapeutically. Okay, great. Another thing I saw on here, Stephen, do you have anything to add on that? Nope. Great. Another thing I saw is at-home testing arrives with accuracy in question. Any any thoughts on this? Is this something that's smart to do, or are we just is this kind of like the I don't know, like 
false sense of security kind yeah, of thing. I mean, I mean, I think if accuracy is in question, accuracy is the question. Or, or you know, <laughs> yeah, it's totally. like, that is the, <laughs> the question. Because we, we, what we want is ideally, and you know, I think what, what we want is to be able to glean really high resolution epidemiologic data from home testing. That would be the the big picture win, right? So not only does it allow you to make decisions about if it's safe to see somebody who's in a vulnerable population, but it also helps us globally as a society, you know, to understand where the disease is, how it's spreading and how quickly. And so, you know, I don't, I don't have, I don't know what you think, Stephen, I don't have any like ideological reservations or problems with at-home testing. I, I tend to think that's a great next step. The caveat being that it's just important as with anything, including a test that you get in the hospital to understand such things as, you know, what's its sensitivity? What's its specificity? What is it? negative test mean you know is that a true negative or a false negative and just having a, like a working understanding of that and that is a role of you know somewhat nuanced and targeted scientific communication yeah you know you're right it's there's there's a really interesting behavioral element here too which if if you like you said if the test doesn't have perfect specificity and you end up with a false positive or vice versa you might well change your behavior based on the outcome of the test and that that could actually end up leading to you know, riskier behaviors or, or the spread of disease in cases where where it might have been prevented if a person just didn't know what their test status was so yeah. i think there is something really important about you know the 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 fact that the the physician patient relationship is is a relationship and that ideally the physician is there you know both to diagnose and to treat but also to help the patient sort of understand what these things actually mean on a practical level and being able to speak to the patient sort of on on their level and in a context that 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 makes sense and so i i do have some reservations about home testing because i think that it's it's an important thing to do but like like mark said just the communication will have to be very very clear and very nuanced and yeah i i, I could see it in certain cases backfiring but i do think that that ultimately it will be a valuable thing and and something that you know, we're headed that way anyway. Yeah. And we'll just have to find ways to make sure that it is as safe and as accurate uh, as possible. Yeah, that even think about that of just this idea of another advancement of becoming your own doctor and right. the, 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 the drawbacks of that. And I've, I've witnessed that in our, on our own family when we're trusting Dr. Google to help us get through some crazy situations and it only makes it worse. <laughs> so having a professional to, to go to is an important thing, especially now when it's yeah. much easier just to Google. Actually have been forced to go to the doctor, it might be a helpful thing to discuss with a professional. Yeah. Yeah. It's a complex, it's a complex thing. And I think we'll talk about it too, as we get to our kind of deeper dive on some of the racial issues as well. And, you know, we've talked about this, I think just as a place that I want to uh, bring up some of the racial disparities that we've seen just in test administration. Yeah. Um, and this recognition that, that yes, I think in the ideal case, this clinician patient relationship is a is a good relationship and a, you know, benevolent one and one that provides guidance. And I think in the messy kind of everyday way that this gets enacted in the world, there are big gaps and yep. it, we're far from an ideal scenario in which everybody who needs care gets the care that they yeah. need and deserve. And, and so I think it's, this is yet another just example of the way that the pandemic, I think highlights and brings, you know, visible things that are already present and, and, you know, there's lots and lots of conversations we can have about kind of democratizing medicine and certain diagnostics and, and therapeutics and stuff. And that's a whole other whole other thing. But it's it's just so interesting to me how much of this is intersecting with kind of our current moment. 
That is an important bookmark to put on because we'll be getting back to that really soon. But just exactly how this pandemic has already, even before the George Floyd tragedy happened, was already percolating and festering within and, and the pandemic was elevating this racial disparity. A couple more things I wanted to chat with with Stephen. New Zealand heard this. This is huge success. Fifth straight day of no confirmations. Uh, can we learn anything from this? Or is this just something unique to New Zealand that I just need to like take my family and move there? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it, New Zealand seems like a great place. I've never been. It's beautiful. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I just uh, saw pictures. Well, <laughs> one, of my, one of my very good friends from when I was doing my PhD is from New Zealand. I don't know if Ollie listens to this, but if so, you know, go all blacks. Their rugby team is amazing. And uh, yeah, you know, New Zealand's, you know, <laughs> I, I think it's worth pointing out the obvious first, right? So New Zealand is an island. <laughs> and has a high sheep to person it population. Does indeed. <laughs> which right. obs- observationally, <laughs> observationally, yeah. that is probably the factor. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that does play a role. You know, it's, it's a lot easier to keep illness out when, you know, you're more likely to interact with a sheep than you are with another human being. And, and you know, and, and you can sort of like close your borders a lot more. <laughs> oh, that's reason. so unfair. That's so unfair. <laughs> no offense to New Zealand. No yeah, offense. No, New Zealand is wonderful. So, yeah, so I think that you know, the New Zealand definitely has a couple of uh, geographic and demographic things going in its favor where the the sort of strategy that worked for New Zealand would not work for a United States. Uh, That's not to say that there's nothing to learn from them. I think that there is a lot to learn from them. They were incredibly proactive with their response. There was a lot of trust in the authorities and there was a lot of clear communication from, from, from the government about what was happening, what was going to happen what their intention was, what their goals were. And so those things I think are, are very transferable and are things that I really admire about their response. And, and, and you're right, you know, they're, they're reaping the benefits, it seems like right now, of, of their early action and of their buy-in. And in, in many ways, it's, it seems like, you know, it, it, they're, they're a bit of a success story at the moment. It's, it's too early to say anything final about anyone, you know, like this, this, yeah. this whole situation is still shifting and there's, there, there, it could very well be the case that there are new introductions there, but, but you know, the, the fact is that they're they've achieved a huge deal of of control over the outbreak, and it seems like a lot of their population is, is seems to be very satisfied with with the actions that the government took, and now the freedoms that they can enjoy um, as a result. That's great. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't hurt that the like you said that there, at least there was a unified plan and a leadership and a community willing to go along with it and support it. And uh, just congratulations to New Zealand and their uh, great achievement. And hopefully it continues to be that way. Another thing I want to see before we get into the deep dive, this one was fascinating to me. It just came on my radar, I think, yesterday. And it said, top journal retracts study claiming masks ineffective in preventing COVID-19 spread. And so it was on a website that I've never heard of. So I was a little suspicious, but it was grounded in a good, I think it was, it was good. And I wanted to pick your brain on this with Stephen on two areas. Number one, this idea of uh, masks, because you have the WHO saying one thing and the CDC saying one thing, but that's kind of a, a, a kind of a sidebar to the main part of this that I wanted to, to ask you about. And this, it was in with this quote, and it said, the article joins our ever-growing list of retracted COVID-19 studies, which I don't know much about that. It is a reminder that for all of the alarm over pub- publicity of preprints, because they are not peer-reviewed, quote, peer-reviewed studies also require caution. And then here's the key line. Perhaps the real problem is speed, not peer review status. If only someone had warned us. Stephen, thoughts on these? Yeah, it's so. Uh, the first thing I'll say is that you know it's it's good that we're bringing this to light, and it's it's definitely true that just because something is published in a peer reviewed article doesn't mean that it's true. 
science, <laughs> this is going to be a strange thing to say, but science doesn't operate in the realm of truth or of proof. I mean, it does to some extent, like it's aiming towards a truth for sure, but there is no one study that conclusively, you know, the, the, the scientific process is not aimed at, you know, conclusively proving something, right? That's, that's mathematics. And there's a very small subset of things that mathematics can say is actually true. <laughs> Science is about gathering evidence and discussing that evidence and sharing it and achieving a consensus such that, you know, beyond reasonable doubt, we can believe something to be true. And so uh, on the one hand, you know, there, a retraction sounds like this, this huge issue, right? Like, I think we think mm -hmm. of retractions as a failing of the scientific process, but it's quite the opposite. You know, the, the retractions happen frequently. I, I, I chuckled a little bit when you were saying that the, the list of, you know, retracted articles is ever growing. Well, it's, it's sure not shrinking, right? It's not going to shrink. It's not going to go down. That's a, there's, a, there's a mathematician. Yeah, like, for I'm, I'm not getting any younger either, right? Like there's only one direction that can go. Yeah, um, sure. And so, so like that's fine. And, and, and we... The, a, a scientific journal is is a forum for discussion and communication, and and the peer review process is intended to make it harder to publish things that are not reproducible and that are not accurate. But things are going to slip through, right? When when a, a peer review means basically that an article is sent out to three or four colleagues, you know, and it, these people are also pressed for time, and and we do our best, you know, we do our due diligence because the the health of our field depends on it to review these things well. But some things do slip through. Um, and some things need to be retracted. And that's, that's another, I think that's actually another sign of health of, of, of the scientific field as a whole. You know, we're, we're learning as we go. And there is this, there is this trade-off, of course, between, between speed and accuracy to some extent. If, if we could think about a single problem for our entire lives, it, it would probably be more accurate than, you know, than, than some of the things that we're necessarily putting out at a rapid pace right now. But, but the pace right now is also important as, as the situation continues to develop. So it's, it's not clear sort of what that optimal balance is. And there's no doubt that we're not yeah. getting it totally right. But, but, you know, I think, I think what I do think is, is that, that quote, it does, does a very good job of pointing out that there is a trade-off between, between speed and, and, you know, sometimes the quality of the findings, not necessarily, but, but, you know, on the whole, that's, that's true. And it, it really does require us to, to really be thoughtful about the information that we're consuming. Yeah, before I hand over to Mark, I just it just reminds me of last week. You and I, Stephen, were just I think I think it was last week, maybe a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure, but we talked about how the pressure of the media uh, upon the scientists, and I could only imagine that doesn't help anything. For I mean, I think there's a natural desire desire to put speed to the research to help. There's that that's the main impetus, mm -hmm. but then also the media's desire for rapid like you know conclusions, like you know exact numbers and knowing exactly where this is going right now doesn't help the scientific community to stay steady and strong in its research and understand uh, and follow its processes to, to a T. So Mark, you? Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think we had one of the things we had circled around early on was just that even, in, even the case of a global pandemic is not a reason for to kind of cut corners methodologically speaking, just to kind of echo what you were saying, that it's still important to have that rigorous approach because that's what gives us the highest quality evidence and sort of the highest fidelity that we can achieve to, you know, what's really happening in the world. So the other thing that I was just thinking about is a practice that's really common in medicine, uh, which is journal club. And I use the word practice kind of intentionally because it's like, it's, it's 
a thing that we do, but it's also sort of a way of doing that thing. And there's its own sort of rules and traditions around that. But the idea is just that this is a way that young clinicians learn to critically appraise the evidence. So it's not enough for something to be published in a peer reviewed journal. And then for you to go to the abstract and change your clinical practice based on the sort of the one line conclusion, you really do have to understand the nuances of the methods, the patient populations for which this is applicable and not applicable, the you know degree of uh, importance and of the primary outcomes, you know things like that, and so. It's not a big revelation that just that something is peer reviewed means that it needs further investigation. That's ideally the way that we approach anything that comes across our desk, especially anything that we're going to consider changing our practice as a result of. You kind of already led us into this next big, big uh, deep dive of just talking about what's going on. I mean, we've known since our since our last time together last week with Stephen and I, it was really at the cusp of uh, what was happening in the riots and the George Floyd death had already happened, but the 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 really the 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 aftermath had not really picked up and now we're in this explosive environment right now where there are protests going all over the place, peaceful ones, there's riots, uh, there's even death, you know, just in Omaha a couple of days ago, which is my hometown. So that's why I bring it up here, someone killing a black man and and allegedly self-defense. We still don't know exactly, but a lot of this going on, a lot of violence and in the midst of this pandemic, and I want to frame this, I'm going to throw it to just Mark and to Steven. I just want to talk about this, like what is going on and for me, it's been really revealing how ignorant I have been in my own uh, misunderstanding of my own privilege. And I've read a couple articles, and, and I think the greatest thing that's come from this for me is that for the first time, I'm seeing this literature come in front of my eyes now through Facebook, which is not the great, greatest medium. But I'm reading them and I, from trusted friends, and it's really changing so many things about how I see things, how what I've taken for granted, and and, and the systemic racial disparity and racial uh, injustice. And I want to start with, we talked about a few weeks back and Mark wanted to talk, kind of mentioned about talking about the, the racial disparity, even with through the coronavirus and, and, and the susceptibility of, of the black community and seeing this and then we, and seeing that susceptibility. And now we are in this context of we've been home for a lot about, for a long period of time. We have been, many people have lost their jobs. The stress is, 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 is astronomically more intense and now we see this explosion of violence and protests. And, and now I'm being awakened to all these things. And one of the articles I had, I had seen is this idea of coronavirus and black people. We need to talk about medical racism. And again, another eye-opening, and I wanted to throw it to you, Mark. And when I, I read this, and I, I've learned this for the first time, what has been your experience? What have you seen? And, and what can you share about the disparity in the medical system with how we treat the black community? Yeah, you know, I think first off, just want to go back, you know, to an earlier point and a, a word that you had used, which was kind of revelation or this idea that, you know, something is being revealed. And I think it's really important to, to linger there for a minute because, in a certain sense, you know, what's, what has happened is it is exceptional, but it also really, in some ways, it, it reveals something that's been there all along, you know, and that in a certain way that it's, that it is out of a place of privilege that we can even not, ha- not have noticed that it was happening long before last week, you know, and, and I think that all, you know, all of us to to varying degrees have some degree of, you know, understanding that this is a deep seated and 
uh, systemic and like long, very longstanding issue. But w- I think one of the the important things to reflect on in a moment like this, you know, is is not is similar to a lot of what we've experienced with the stresses that this mm-hmm. is uncovering something Absolutely. that is there and has been there for a long, long, long time, and it's not new, and it's and so that and I think that I agree. I think that there's something necessarily humbling and and kind of immediately calling us out of ourselves just by the fact that it takes something you know like this to begin to see see those and to to make this deeper dive and and I think we have to make mm-hmm. use of that impulse you know as as much as we can so I think that's that's just super important and kind of you know reflective of what's going on you'd asked you know about about kind of systemic racism and how it is manifested within medicine. We talked a little bit a couple weeks ago about how one of the wrong ways to think about that is that for some reason that, you know, black or brown bodies or or bodies of marginalized communities or bodies of difference are more susceptible to disease. And that 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 kind of reintroduces this more kind of invidious, like, you know, thinking, thinking and thought about difference that really what we need to think about is how it's systemic factors and factors that are deeply, deeply ingrained in our systems and our practices uh, that perpetuate circumstances in which the consequences are far more grave. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's tough, it's tough to engage on that level. And I think that, you know, not that, that some of the racism that we see is of the type that is very kind of bald and, very much kind of interpersonal and directed but so much of the racism that we participate in it is of this other type and without really having a deep understanding of how that happens and how we can sort of work against that grain and how just there's an inherent momentum to it and if we just go along with life as usual we're actually still kind of participating not kind of we're still participating in that systemic movement towards injustices and that sort of thing i think that's to me that's the first step and so it's not so much seeing you know instances of racist words or actions you know that are directly kind of focused on an individual patient but it's also kind of understanding the ways that the broader systems in which we participate have that kind of built in in really really tough ways to tease out, but absolutely crucial ways to start to tease out. Steven? Yeah, I mean, uh, so I think I may have shared a little bit about this on a previous podcast, but I think I want to talk a little bit more about a a project that I was involved in and, and sort of more from the personal perspective. So just before the pandemic really started ramping up, I was thinking about antibiotic prescribing And we noticed, we were just looking at Massachusetts, and we noticed that antibiotic prescribing rates were a lot lower in Boston than in the rest of Massachusetts. And one of the big pushes behind antibiotic resistance is you want to reduce antibiotic prescribing, um, because prescribing, higher prescribing leads to higher resistance, et cetera. So of course, you know, I, I was sitting there with my two advisors and we were, we were thinking about why this might be the case. And we assumed, you know, surely it's because the doctors in Boston are better, right? They're doing a better job of prescribing. They're fresher out of medical school. They know about antibiotic resistance. They're doing a better job. And we, we dug into the, the data more and we did some more analysis and, and things just weren't matching up and weren't matching up. And finally we came across, I was, I was just generating some maps with some census data and the ended up basically just getting like this almost perfect correlation with with socioeconomic status or there's this this index that we think about in public health called the social deprivation index but it 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 incorporates a lot of things that basically predict 
a person's inability to access medical care, and and race was one of those factors, and and it matched perfectly where where. Basically, people in more impoverished areas were prescribed fewer antibiotics, and it was because they couldn't take their kids to the doctor because they couldn't afford to take off of work. And there was this moment where I was sitting in the room with with my advisors, right? And there was just like this this probably two minutes. We just sort of sat there in silence. We were just like, "Oh my gosh!" Like, like it, it was it was this sense of participating in exactly what Mark was talking about. You know, there's there's this overt racism that, that that we think about but there there was also this this implicit racism that that I think in that moment we were we were guilty of in a sense because we we couldn't cast our minds to you know initially what what the actual problem was which was a problem of access to care we we assumed that it was just because you know the doctors in Boston are the best and the brightest right and and mm-hmm. it's those sorts of small assumptions that that perpetuate that continued access to care because because we're literally the problem was we're literally blind to the problem right if we, if we can't if we can't even see that if we can't even if that notion can't enter our set of possibilities and it didn't for us then uh, then how can we possibly begin to speak about it to address it to think about it in a productive way and so yeah so and i think that also goes to show that you know these these problems like we said existed long before this pandemic and this pandemic is is exacerbating some and and revealing some to those of us who as mark said had the privilege of, of ignoring them before but you know now here we are and we're starting to look them a little bit more squarely in the face Mark, you were, oh, go ahead, Mark, if you want to keep talking, but you were mentioning at the very beginning about home tests and you wanted to put a bookmark in light of this and uh, access and accessibility. You want to mention anything more about that as well? Yeah. I mean, I think that that kind of covers it, that this, that as, as we address epidemiologic questions, we just have to know that none of that exists in a vacuum, that there is no kind of pure epidemiologic space that doesn't intersect with all of these other social variables and factors. And I think, you know, to, to kind of the other, other points that we've been circling around is the, in this, this conversation is, you know, what do we do? Like, where do we go from here? And I think what I'd like to hear, you know, from you guys and, and to learn is like, where do we go to hear these voices and these other voices that need to be heard and making sure that those are being elevated appropriately? You know, I think that it, it, one of the things, so one thing that uh, my wife just brought to my attention this morning was Colorado Public Radio posted an article where they pulled some of the black leaders in our local Colorado community about what what should people be reading right now? You know, what are things, what are recommended books or, you know, things that you recommend engaging with to help broaden your understanding of these ingrained issues of race. And I think that I, I love that idea, this idea of kind of like, how do we very intentionally step outside of our typical routine, whatever that is, and seek out these other perspectives and really, really seek out voices of, of individuals who are dealing with this every day that we just have to listen and continue to listen more and continue to listen better. And just really, I mean, that if there's one thing that I'm taking away from this is just like, maybe part of my role is to just listen more. Yeah. Stephen, you mentioned this about we're blind to the problem and this may seem disconnected to the pandemic, the coronavirus, but it, I think it really is connected and will land it in a particular way. But we, I, I can speak for myself only. I'm blind to the, the more insidious problem of racism that, that, that seems more innocuous that you were alluding to, Mark, not the overt, like in your face, but the systemic problem 
well, how do we do what we see, but we have to listen. We have to have ears to be able to listen. Uh, and, and, and who are the voices that we're going to listen to? It remind me of, I'll post this article that I posted on Facebook. I'll put it in the show notes. And it was about this, this, this white girl who was saying, look, uh, you know, I'm being, I'm being called to having white privilege. I don't know what it means. Uh, I, I, I love everyone, but I'm still saying that this is my problem. Can someone help me understand where my white privilege is? And so this gentleman who was black, who was must've been a friend, uh, just rift for like, I don't know, it was a few pages long before he could, you know, have dinner with his family of going in chronologically of, of the issues that he faced as a young black child, a black adolescent, all the way through to, he went to Harvard. And one thing that stood out to me was that he was a freshman at Harvard and they were, it was some intercultural class and they were going to read on Malcolm X and a few other books uh, by African-Americans. And one of the white students stood up on the first day and said, I tried reading. This makes no sense to me. Like, why are we, why, why am I reading this? Right. And it just awoke to me. And he kind of explained, like, he was just so irate. He's like, I've been doing this my entire life. Every, every sitcom, every movie, every book I read is through a white perspective that makes little sense to me. And you, for one class, one class, want to listen to a different voice and you can't do it. And that just, that really provoked a, a lot in me, even like what my boys are watching on TV, what books we're reading to them and how narrow it is in their framework and how I'm not providing an avenue for them to listen to a different narrative, a different story. So they can add that to their arsenal of understanding. Steven? Yeah, I think that you know that's those are some really great points, and I did skim through yeah. the article that that oh. you had sent, and and I was similarly struck by by that man's points. Yeah, it's you know it, these these issues are so complex, and I think that it's very easy to to in a way throw up our hands. You know, we talk about systemic injustices, and I think one of my fears is that we will say that oh, because it is a problem for the system, that no individual one of us has a responsibility for changing it. Or no individual one of us can can begin to understand what the issues are well enough that we could even know what what action to take. And and, and I hope we don't fall into into that kind of apathy. I think that's that's my biggest concern. To be clear, I do think that a lot of these issues of access to care are are absolutely multifactorial. Right? We we can never pin everything on any one thing. I think anyone who does claim to have the single explanation for all of the ills in the world is almost certainly lying. Right? But but also as an epidemiologist, we sort of you know when when you see injustices that do fall along racial lines, you know uh, the really the only conclusion is that that's there that these that these you know, these injustices exist, that they're in play. And even if we can't necessarily observe them directly, we're certainly observing them, you know, indirectly from some perspectives and many other people are observing them all too directly. And so I think, I think my hope is just that we can, we can really, as Mark said, just like listen and, and think and really use the resources at our disposal to, to, to figure out just sort of what's going on and and to try to take whatever action we can. Yeah, to kind of begin to sum things up and land it, I think exactly what Mark was saying, that for me, what I've realized that I need to follow this three-step process. I need to follow, listen, discover, and then take action. I'll give the example that I shared with Mark and Steven the other day. So it was Blackout Tuesday yesterday, and I didn't even know it was that. And I saw some posts, and I immediately wanted to participate. So I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do. So I did my black image and did, you know, blackout and said a couple statements at how I'm I'm learning a lot from this. And then I find out today I did the wrong thing. <laughs> like that that Blackout Tuesday was not actually for to like stop all voices. It was simply to um, mute the commerce and the, husba- the buzz of, of other things and allow the real voice 
voices to rise to the top. But instead, we all posted black pictures and it drowned out the voices yesterday that needed to be heard. It's like, ah, oh, crap. I was trying to do the right thing and I didn't. And so it's making me now trying to take a step back, right? Uh, to listen more, to really focus in discovering uh, where I have been misunderstood, where I have uh, done things that have been inappropriate, participate in systemic problem of 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 of, of, the, of this racial disparity, and so my encouragement to 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 everyone is: I think your your mother in law Deborah wrote an email mm-hmm. asking this question of like what. I get that you, that you guys want to talk about helping the vulnerable, but you know, going to charity and giving to charity and talking to friends, it still doesn't solve the problem. Like, can you talk about the hard situation of what should we do? This is before this all happened that she sent this, this email. And honestly, I don't have a solid answer except for what Mark and Steven was saying. It's like, I think right now for me is the biggest thing I need to learn how to listen. A great book that changed kind of my life, like in, 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 a, in a habitual kind of day-to-day basis is called The Coaching Habit by, I'm probably going to butcher his name, by Michael Bungay Stainer. And he also came with a new book called The Advice Trap, which I think is kind of like two parts of the same coin. And he talks about if you want to be a good coach, and, and this, this is related, that you've got to learn how to listen. And you know, basically being a good coach is all about asking the right questions and really provoking to understand the person before you. And I think that's the biggest thing we need to learn right now is how to ask the right questions and to listen and to understand and then to take the action necessary, because I think we're taking the action first and we're jumping, uh, we're putting the cart before the horse and we're creating more problems, especially since this is so insidious and so systemic, it's going to take a longer time to understand the problem so we can have our, our answer to a better solution. Yeah, you know, so just in the same way. Oh, go yeah, ahead. So it, yeah, I, I agree. And I think I do, I wish that I had a better, no. you know, kind of packaged answer. It's in terms of like, what do we do? And I, and I think there's this temptation to be like, where, you know, where do we put our energies and our, our money and our time so that these things get Go. fixed. But I do really think that the first step is one, uh, at least for me, of kind of that personal transformation. And I did want to go just kind of address something that I think is really, really important, Matt, that you've been saying too, is this feeling of whether it's awkwardness or not doing it right, that I think that's, I, I think that's okay. I think that there's a place for that and a place for, for messing up with good intentions. You know, of course we don't want to mess up, but there's a certain vulnerability that comes from just starting that process and like stepping outside of yourself into another experience and speaking into some of these issues. And I was reminded of an essay that I really love by Audre Lorde, who is a poet. And I came across her kind of in studies of illness narratives, because she has this really incredible meditation called the Cancer Journals about her diagnosis of with breast cancer, but it's, it intersects with her work as an activist and as a, an artist. And she has this really amazing essay um, called The Transformation of Silence into Language and Action. And I did want to just flesh or uh, cite a couple lines from that where she talks about the process of of moving from a place of silence into a place of language and action. So she says, and of course I'm afraid because the transformation of silence into language and action is an act of self-revelation and that always seems fraught with danger. She goes on to say, in the cause of silence, each of us draws the face of her own fear, fear of contempt, of censure, of some judgment or recognition, of challenge, of annihilation. But most of all, I think we fear the visibility without which we cannot truly live. And that visibility, which makes us most vulnerable, is that which also is the source of our greatest strength. Uh, she's speaking in that, you know, particularly to 
other members of the community of communities of color who need to be more visible. And, and I think one of the things that we can do is, you know, we speak out of our silence and, and out of our humility and kind of trying to understand, but we also try and elevate those voices or get out of the way of those voices that are trying to speak out of their silence and need to be visible. So kind of an abstract answer and a difficult one, but those are some of the things that I've been thinking about and and reading in the last couple of weeks. That's great. I was thinking something similar of absolutely like I feel so like in a difficult situation, feel awkward. Even doing this episode has just been hard for me to like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I probably screwed up by saying the wrong words. And, and I think there's a, there's an, like you said, there's an okayness with this in the sense of where I had a friend who talked about who was working with someone and uh, they were black and and she was trying to like understand her, her world and it kept getting the pushback like, well, you don't understand, you don't understand. And it was starting to get frustrating. They couldn't quite even just understand each other. And it's almost to the point where I feel like my response has to be uh, at this point in time that, yeah, I don't understand. And uh, you have to understand that I don't understand. <laughs> and that's okay as well. Like uh, I, don't, I will never understand and I'm going to try for the rest of my life. Uh, to understand, but there are things by which I'll probably constantly screw up. But the most important thing is to lean in, to listen, and to and to take some kind of action that's going to require a deeper sense of vulnerability and not a script and not something that's succinct and not something that's social media driven, but tenderness and empathy. It just ending this, it just reminded me going back, it's all about listening to the qualified professionals. And right now, it's those who, who have the voices, who've experienced the, 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 uh, the, the judgment and uh, the racial disparity and the, race, and the racism. And to listen to these voices is what I'm trying to do every day, listening, understanding, and trying to take better action. And that's how it all started with, with, with COVID. I'm like, I have no idea what's going on and I need to learn to what it means to listen to qualified professionals and not just a noise. And it's not easy. I was thankful that I had Mark and Steven right at my disposal to be able to do that. And this is a bigger and difficult situation uh, but I have friends who, who, who are, I believe, have that ability to do that for me. And I hope that's there for you as well. So I encourage you all to, to really take a strong moment to listen and to become aware and to discover and to take action. Okay. That ends it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you have a free moment, leave a, a rating, a review on iTunes, as well if you can support this podcast, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast, or a one-time payment on PayPal or Venmo, all in the show notes. If you want to contact Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R on Twitter. If you want to reach out to me, you can do it at matt at livingthereal.com about podcasts or the episodes or anything. Feel free to reach out to me. We love to hear from the people who listen, just to hear what's going on in your side of the world. Well, we thank you for listening and we will see you again next week. Take care. Bye-bye.